This episode of Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Account Insight helps you deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies because today's B2B buyer decides digitally and in teams of up to 40 people. Account Insight helps you solve the problem of marketing to whole accounts, not just to one person. That's why smarter B2B marketers use account-based advertising. Founded by former WPP executives with extensive experience building and delivering B2B solutions, several friends of the show and leading B2B agencies use Account Insight to deliver targeted ads. You can find out more at accountinsight.ai. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And if you are interested in B2B marketing and ABM, then you will not be disappointed with this conversation because... Christopher Engman is the co-founder and managing partner of the Mega Deals Advisory, and he is the father of ABM. And look, a lot of people claim to be that, but he literally invented IP targeting, which is the foundation of all things ABM and B2B marketing. He's been involved in hundreds of ABM campaigns for Fortune 500 businesses. His methodology for Mega Deals and his book and podcast by the same name is a playbook on how to do ABM properly and how to sell to really complex organizations where it's almost impossible to get all of the senior decision makers in one room at the same time. You're selling cross-functionally in matrix organizations with deals that number in the several billions sometimes. This is where traditional B2B sales and marketing approaches really come short. And Christopher does a masterful job really detailing how ABM should be done properly. Chris is super smart and really fun too. And we could have really spoken about this for hours if we didn't have a rough one hour time limit on our shows. If you want a really quick primer on where ABM is today, where it's going, the way B2B sales is done and should be done, not only now, but in the future, then this is the podcast for you. I came out of this conversation significantly wiser and generally more well-versed in all things ABM and how to sell multi-million, sorry, multi-billion pound deals. If you only listen to one episode of Agency Deal Masters this year, make sure this is the episode you listen to. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Christopher Engman. Christopher Engman is the father of ABM, the author of Mega Deals, and an investor in sustainability and MarTech scale-ups. He started in ABM in 2007 and has been personally involved in hundreds of B2B deals and several multi-billion pound deals. His Mega Deals advisory is assisting scale-ups and Fortune 500 companies doing more and bigger mega deals. Because of their size, scope, complexity, and status, Mega deals are deeply meaningful to the mega dealers behind them. They present an opportunity to change the world for the better on a massive scale. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Christopher Engman, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you. My pleasure. Super excited to have you on the show. Let's talk about your history and background because it's an absolutely fascinating one. Your early career, you worked a lot with sort of IT and tech businesses You've got a mathematics background. And as I said in the intro, you're literally the father of ABM. Tell us what led you to inventing the term ABM in 2007. 
so actually the term was was coined a bit later in the beginning we call it pipeline marketing and, and the, the kind of tagline was pipeline marketing starts where lead generation ends so we were using it to accelerate and increase the win rate of your ongoing deals and also to grow existing accounts whereas lead generation where most companies still unfortunately pay most of their attention is on the lead generation and they leave and then they kind of hand over lead to sales and let sales run on their own but but that is a bit it it's not the successful formula i even have an analogy imagine you're going towards a fortress inside the fortress you have your the employees of your target account and you with your army are approaching this fortress you get a small hole in one of the portals and you allow one warrior to go in that warrior be, will be minced meat within <laughs> that fortress and, and right. that's how it is to sell to a 52 armed octopus uh, which uh, a matrix or a cube organized large company is mm. you, you're kind of going whoa where am i really confusing and yeah. you don't know who's deciding or anything and if you leave sales on their own in those kind of the pipeline phase and the existing clients that's a huge mistake so marketing's role is especially in larger deals is very heavy on the ongoing sales processes and the existing accounts so would marketing's role in that analogy be the sort of the infantry or the people that are firing the arrows over the over the wall into the into the castle right Actually, it's funny that you you ask for a, like a military analogy. We actually call it air support. Like uh, interesting, okay. You have the ground troops that are the salespeople, and then marketing's role is to fly over. I mean, we're not talking about bombs here. It's just an analogy, but sure. flying over, dropping the bombs, supporting the ground troops uh, with the air support, and and that needs to be done. If you imagine again the fortress, if you have ten airplanes simultaneously dropping bombs over the fortress mm. and you also have support entering 10 doors as opposed to one door the game changes mm. entirely interesting we need to change the analogy though because we're making love not war but the analogy no, no, works no i i'm, I'm not pro-war uh, to be right. clear i'm not pro-war i i just i just struggle so we i have another one it could work for either football or ice. So let's take football which is a more global sport right i also like ice hockey i'm a swede but uh, if you take, uh, you have two football teams and the, the team on the other side is your client and you're on, on, on this side. And the 10 of the 11 players are just standing in their own half of the field and they're shooting a long ball. And there's only one attacker, let's say Thierry Henry or, or right. so, so, <laughs> I don't know who we want to pick. Uh, yeah. or, or a Cristiano Ronaldo, even though sure. he, he's amazing, he, he, won't, he won't score many goals because... Mm he will meet a dense defense. Mm. So maybe that analogy is I prefer that analogy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's stick with that one. <laughs> so, so we'll come back to this later on. How, how do you sell to a 52 armed octopus? We'll come back to that a little bit later mm. in the conversation. But you grew your first business, an IP targeting company, an analytics company, and you sold it to Dun & Bradstreet. Mm. What were the biggest takeaways from that experience? Selling it to Dun & Bradstreet? Growing your business and selling it full stop. Right, right. So I had already sold enterprise solutions in the past 
and both failed and succeeded. So I was already on a track where I wanted to decode how larger deals should be done because I've seen so many times a high dependency on the Thierry Armies or the, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's. Cristiano Ronaldo's or Messi's. It's a high dependency, even in the biggest companies in the world. Uh, we call it rainmakers, as it's a rainmaker dependency. So I've since many, many years been focused on how can you crack the code and take away that rainmaker dependency. And well, I was for a short period a CIO. It's not my personality type at all. But this uh, big retailer wanted a very business savvy CIO. So, and I wanted a bit of a pause from entrepreneurship. I've been building companies since I was 10 years old. So I was like, yeah, let's try a big corporation for once. So I was a CIO for a while and, and a lot of IT companies were selling to me. And I realized that even on, yeah, on paper, I had the big budgets, I had big mandates, but I did not have the mandate in real life to make the big decisions. I had to anchor all of these decisions with a lot of people in other departments, in other hierarchical levels, et cetera. So especially in IT, the solutions, especially larger solutions, they are covering a multitude of functional areas and, and even countries, et cetera. So yes, on paper, I had the budgets, but that didn't mean I could call the shots. So hmm. I realized how, how big this internal politics is, even when internal people are trying to sell it, sell a change internally. And then I realized, and having been on the outside of a larger company trying to sell to them, it's even worse. It's like hmm. standing again, the, the fortress with, wood and arrows and you're kind of pium, pium, <laughs> trying to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really hard mm -hmm. so I, I started to play around with with my team so we actually saw a company that used ip numbers for tracking purposes and then we were like hmm if you can use ip numbers to track who's which companies on your website because that's obvious that you can do with an ip number mm -hmm. we were thinking you should be able to use the IBM number to actually change the content of the website. So the first proactive solution we launched was to, you know, if someone come in, comes to megadeals.com, uh, coming from the forest industry, now we're more targeted. So, so, but let's say you're selling into 10 different industries and then you're changing the content immediately on the start page, depending on which industry or which account they're from. So that was, a, we call it landing zones as opposed to landing pages. It's not a new page. It's on the start page, but we're changing a zone on the start page. So the landing zone was the first thing we did. And then I was like, but if you can change the content of your own website, technically, you should be able to change the content of a third-party website, huh. like a newspaper site or a, you know the guardian or whatever sure so we reached out to uh, the the largest media company in the nordics and we basically said to them hi we have this huge amount of ip numbers we would be interested to, to buy media targeting these ip numbers can that be done and the immediate response was no <laughs> but then they accepted a meeting and then we described it more in detail and they said well actually it seems like we've checked it now. It seems like our system can receive IP numbers because we're using those in order to test campaigns internally. So they were test running campaigns, targeting their own office IP numbers on their new site mm. to see if the ads are looking great, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they said, but there's a limitation. We can only accept, uh, I think it was 128 IP numbers, which is too little for targeting purposes. And then I was like, 128, that's a hexadecimal 
uh, number. So it's probably just someone in the R&D department who's put a database limitation. Right. And that's probably very easy to change. So I asked for access to the, the IT team behind this solution and talking to them. They were like, yeah, yeah, it's a database, database restriction. So we can change it to 2 million. Uh, so <laughs> this this field could, could all of a sudden incorporate 2, 3, 5 million IP numbers because it was a database restriction. So all mm-hmm. of a sudden we could send them this batch of IP numbers and they could target them. But then obviously we created this whole technical solution around this to automate it. But that was the first shot. And and I remember when selling it to IT companies at that time, this is now 2007, 2008, they were like, so this is what's the reaction. So Nathan, or Christopher, obviously, but Christopher, do do you mean that I can take what normally B2C companies are doing, but I can show it only to people in this company? I was like, yes. They're like, seriously? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and then I, I so so revelation. Very, yeah, I was like, are, are you? Are is that for real? Like it's it's. So I often got the reaction, it's too good to be true. Yeah, like, this sounds too good to be true. Sure, but yeah, it was impossible. And then we scaled that to a global solution, and and uh, we managed to get over hundred Fortune five hundred companies as clients, and over four hundred scale ups, uh, and majority of clients in so kind of forty forty Europe. North America, and then 20% in Asia, something like that. Fascinating. Then we sold it to, to Dun & Bradstreet. Uh, and yeah. Fascinating. What, what a fascinating story. So, so talk about then the evolution of IP targeting and B2B marketing then in sort of 2007, 2008, and take us on a journey as to kind of how we've evolved to where we are today. Like, how do we sell to a 52 sort of armed octopus, as you say? How has the evolution of B2B marketing changed from those early days to where we are now? Right. So one thing that I saw early was that companies started to switch from cold calling to email shots, and then they followed up with cold calls. But that has then moved into content search, form fills, and demos. And the mistake that many companies do is that they use that that method, which is great for the long tail, and they apply it on large accounts. When applying it to large account, it fails entirely. Why? Because because you have a fifty-two armed octopus, and the the typically someone that fills out the form from a big corporation is a very junior person. Hmm. It's very rarely the top executive. So you kind of starting the sales process on the wrong level. And with, I mean, a low priority case often. So uh, typically in the in the larger deal space, you are more proactive say, saying, I, we want to approach these 20, 50, 100, 200 companies because they have a great fit with us. So you're proactively selling to them and running marketing towards them. But going back to your question about evolution. So the first thing that came around that, that we invented was this IP targeting. And, and then changing content the website based on IP. And same, same year, actually, Facebook was born. So 2007 feels like ages ago, right? But it's mm. quite recently. Uh, and LinkedIn was born more or less the same time. Mm. Those and Instagram and TikTok and, and whatnot, they have evolved tremendously. So a big change after the IP targeting is that social media now, I, I don't remember the number, but it's, it's by far more than 50% of the surfing time that is done inside the social media. So in the B2B marketing now, social media plays a very big role. 
which was not the case where when I invented the IP targeting. Hmm. So now you need to do a larger blend. So with our clients, we're mixing the IP targeted display ads, but now it's more content rich. So it's more videos and articles in those ads, but you're blending that with uh, IP targeted native advertising. So you, you're buying the editorial space on a new site, but it's advertising marked, hmm. but you're targeting that towards an IP number, which is a new thing. And you're blending that with targeting on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. And we, we just actually today signed a, a, an agreement with TikTok that we're playing around with as well. So we're using a mix of, of techniques. And then we have another technique, which is pretty cool, where you can, you can we call it person-based targeting, where you can target individuals uh, using Instagram and Facebook. So we're researching them, find, trying to find them on social media, and then we target them on social media. So there are a few differences. So first of all, the first difference is has gone from the IP targeting to quite a wide portfolio of techniques. So we're using 14 different techniques. Mm-hmm. The other change is that it's gone from being very top of the funnel, so very leads oriented. So now what I talked about 2007, this kind of pipeline marketing starting where lead generation ends, that is now something that all the front runners are using but not just IP targeting based. So, so where you in parallel with the, with the sales teams, you're constantly doing a synced marketing with what the deal team is talking about. And some of the coolest cases that we're involved with, we come in like a SWAT team around our clients' largest deals. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we're like doing deal support to them for them to increase the win rate and the amounts and then the shorten the deal cycle. Mm-hmm. So more full funnel content and full funnel targeting big change uh, but much bigger variety of targeting techniques is also changed compared to 2007 and also the cultural acceptance for marketing and sales working hand in hand has has evolved tremendously since mm-hmm. 2007 now the laggards are still doing marketing and sh- shooting it over the fence to sales and then sales is running with it the 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 front runners are not doing that since quite a long time so if you listening to this are still shooting mqls over the fence (laughs) to sales you are by far behind you're not running a winning game really fascinating so let's talk about mega deals now because we've gone from abm and now we're going to some really significant deals in the billions or multi-billions actually I, have, I haven't read the book. Um, it's still on my very long Amazon reading list, but talk about mega deals. What are mega deals? Which companies are engaged in mega deals? Who is it right for and who is it not right for? Right. So we actually, uh, this ABM approach uh, triggered actually a new avenue. So actually go back even further. So before the ABM journey, I failed a company where the biggest apart from me being a too young ceo and and very junior in many ways i failed to scale marketing and sales selling into enterprises so it was very dependent on me and in the beginning i was like yes uh, i'm the cristiano ronaldo but then i realized this this is horrible if i can't scale marketing and sales if it's dependent on me i just have to work 24 7. so Probably some executives listening to this can, can recognize this, that they're just working and working more and more. Mm. That's the only way to increase the, the revenue line, which is obviously not sustainable. 
Now, so I, I also failed the company. Uh, we even bankrupted. And, and that made me decide that I will never fail a company again because of the incapability of scaling marketing and sales, selling into matrix and cube organizations, the 52 armed octopuses. So I've, I've devoted my life since then to cracking that code. And during this 10 years of doing ABM, we had actually another bottleneck, which was not on the sales side but rather on the workshop setting the tactics around the marketing play to win a certain deal. So luckily, it was actually a bottleneck during those years because it was only myself and a British guy who could do it. But now it's, a, it's an advantage because I've been in so many workshops setting the tactics together with the deal teams on how to win the multi-billion dollar deals. So I've seen a lot. So oftentimes... Uh, by the coffee machine in a pause in these workshops, I was talking to these amazing deal makers and I asked them, so what kind of literature do you, do you read that describes the kind of deals you're doing? And the constant answer was, there are no such books. Hmm. And that was like, in the beginning, I was like, is that really true? I mean, for most B2B companies, these five to 50 deals are paying for more than 80% of the salaries in such a company. They are... Uh, if you listen to our podcast with Mark Organ, that's typically where you have more than 100% of the profit. And mm. uh, I ask him, what do you mean by more than 100%? Well, you lose money on the long tail. So you need to have more than 100%. So mm. it's more mm. than 100% of profit come out of the big camps. So, yeah. And talking to these really amazing salespeople triggered a thought that why don't I convert it into, this into real study, not just picking up things in these workshops? It, the, first, the first part was actually taking all the insights from these workshops and co collecting them into a PowerPoint, which I called mega deals already 10 years ago. Hmm. And I, I used that mega deals insights as a way to get the much larger audience inside the large companies. So instead of talking to three people about ABM, I all of a sudden had 50 people in the room talking about mega deals where ABM was a big part. Hmm. So I contextualized ABM by talking mega deals. And the response on those, I mean, early, early stage presentations, that, that response was amazing. So oftentimes, like group management people came to me and said, wow, I really like what you described. I want to hear more about this. And, and they also said, but you've missed one thing. And I was like, okay, great. Please tell me. So I, I got this crowdsourced insights because they all spotted things that I had missed. Right. So, so they gave me more and more insights. So I iterated this material, but then converted it into a serious research study. There was a global study on, on really large deals. So we looked at deals between $10 million all the way up to $15 billion, actually. Hmm. I can't remember if it was Airbus or Boeing, one of the two. We looked at the military industry. We looked at uh, big infrastructure projects, the largest enterprise softwares in the world, uh, big outsourcing contracts, et cetera. But one, one, uh, one realization actually in hindsight is that it's actually not the amount on the contract that determines which logic you have to use to win your deals. So we've now realized actually rather recently that when the three, three criteria, the triggers that you need to shift your selling from normal selling into orchestration and mega deals is about orchestration. So first of all, you're selling into an organization that is no longer a pyramid, but rather a matrix or a cube or even worse. So they have 
several business units or several divisions. They're, they're in many countries at the same time, and you can't get the management team in one room. So that's the first criteria. The second one is that you are selling something that is bought cross-functionally. So you're not selling it into one function within that company. You're selling it into something that covers several functions. The third criteria is that you cannot pull off a deal with a single salesperson. You're actually pulling in resources from within your organization to be able to, to close the deal. Uh, so you need to sell as a team. When you, when you have those three, you cannot no longer do the classic sales dialogue techniques. You need to combine marketing and sales, and it's more about orchestration than, than sales dialogues. So the mega deals discipline is an orchestration discipline. It's not a sales discipline. That's why mm. it's also multi, it's covering uh, marketing, PR, social media, sales, negotiation, contracting, all, all in one. And, and what many companies struggle with is that they have taken disciplines for their marketing side from an agency. They've taken a sales coach to set the sales discipline. They have a PR agency helping them on the PR side. And when trying to combine these internally, they don't even use the same language. So it's not an organizational issue that is driving the abyss between marketing and sales. It's a lack of a common language and a common messaging architecture. So one of the core pieces of the Megadis discipline is to create a messaging architecture that works throughout the funnel and that is created not by marketing, not by sales, not by customer success, not by product, but all of them combined. Mm. So that is the time where you get a bridge between the functional areas, and where you have something that covers the full funnel with, with the client. And when that is in place, you can more easily cooperate between the teams. It sounds hugely complicated. Um, <laughs> give us an example of what you mean. Give us an example of what messaging architecture looks like. Could you right. even share an example of a mega deal that you've gone through, just to put some light on the picture? Well, uh, those are kind of two questions. So I can take the last one first. So, so, so first of all, as an advisor, I've been involved in tons of multi-billion dollar deals and the, you know, the, even the mid-sized deals, but myself been involved in, so $60, $60 million is the biggest I've been personally part of the deal team. But then probably actually my biggest sales exp- learning is coming from being part of selling into over 100 Fortune 400 companies and growing them during the ABM years, even though the amounts were not staggering, we were typically selling into at least two functions, so marketing and sales, and to these 52 armed beasts. Uh, so we learned a lot about the internal politics and how to play that. So, and, and second question was about, well, the first, but we take it second, was about messaging architecture. So to give you first a theoretical framework in a short abbreviated format. So it covers fundamental messaging, which is where you take the customer from unaware to wanting to buy. And a junior sales rep will go, I have them, they want to buy. But anyone with a a slightly more experience know that just because they want to buy doesn't mean they buy. So the Mm. next piece of the messaging architecture is something we call the deal closing messaging. And that is moving the customer from wanting to buy to signing. And this is typically the longest part of that buying journey. Uh, And and any rookie would say, I've I've got them. They've come to the sales except. I will sell to to Buig or to 
Bank of America or to Barclay Bank uh, mm. because they've said they want to buy. But anyone with some more seniority knows that, no, it's a long journey left. So the deal closing phase. And then the third piece of the messaging is, is what we call orientational messaging. And that serves as a way to pull in a much larger audience. Actually, the Megadis topic started as an orientational messaging piece where instead of talking about ABM, I talked about a much larger context, which is Megadeals, to be able to product place ABM into bigger context. Now, now it's becoming something bigger than that, but that's how it started. And actually, there is a fourth uh, part of the messaging, which we call people and culture. But just to give you, I, I can give you actually, I can apply, I can apply it a bit on, on our business. So hmm. the, the fundamental messaging involves change drivers, category choices, subcategory choices. And when you've chosen the right subcategory, what kind of capabilities do you need to look at in a vendor? And then very far down, you say, and this is why you buy from us. Hmm. So typically, companies are way too early going, this is why we are the best. They say that way too early. But the customers are buying, they're looking at a problem. First of all, they spend a lot of time prioritizing problems. So these are the five top problems we need to solve. Hmm. So once they prioritize the problem, they look at what are the alternative solutions, alternative categories of solutions that can solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And then they go, okay, this category, let's say, well, we have a growth problem. So if, if I apply this on, on Megadils, so typically they go, really love the Megadils discipline. The first question then is going, uh, well, should we try to solve this internally or should we use a third party? So sure. typically the internal Megadils that they have can't explain what they do. They can't verbalize. They do things right by intuition. It's a bit like asking, again, let's take Thierry Henry, our favorite of today. If we ask Thierry Henry, how do you play amazing football? He might be able to describe it, but he quite often is not capable of describing why he, he was great. He certainly can't teach it to you. No, exactly. And so if you can't make models out of how, what you do yourself, you can't translate that to others. So so can't teach it. And even if they could teach it, they're typically bottlenecks. So they're really, they're really working hard. So they don't have this ocean of time to spend on their colleagues. So, and, and then they have no way of getting sales, marketing, et cetera, combined. So, so normally they, they then on the category choice with us, they go, okay, we need an external party. So then you move down one level and you go, okay, we want to, we, we understand this mega deals thinking or any kind of enterprise play. And they typically have a choice on the subcategory level to either buy a, a marketing agency, a PR agency, a sales coach, and a LinkedIn expert, <laughs> and, tr and trying to combine those internally, which is very hard. Sure. It's like taking four different religions and make one of them. <laughs> or you take a discipline which is synchronized. It's already made for larger for enterprise deals and mega deals, and it's already synchronized across those functions. And then you can onboard people more easily. You can easily get it to expand within your company. And then if they say, okay, that's the approach we want to go. If they then look which vendor can, can, deal, can deliver that, we're actually alone. So our biggest competition is on the category and subcategory level, not with other competitors. Because mm -hmm. when you look at the existing supply, you either find sales disciplines or marketing disciplines or social selling disciplines. You don't find it combined. So that's our own fundamental messaging. The deal closing messaging is typically about answering questions that are consuming a tremendous amount of time from both the sales team and the experts that they pull in. If you're selling a software, for example, and you're European, you, a classic one will go, so 
how do you comply with GDPR? Can we have a two-hour meeting around that? Our <laughs> legal expert, Lucas, he wants to know this. And then that's consuming a lot of time from your bottleneck resources. Or what kind of integrations are you offering? Can we have a meeting about your integrations? Or the customer training? Or we, we want to deep dive into certain functionality. So there are certain areas that any company doing medium-sized to large deals is spending a tremendous amount of time on. So here in the deal closing phase, you benefit from making videos out of these. So instead of having repetitive meetings about GDPR compliance, you have a, a 30 minute video or a 50 minute video where you have your GDPR expert in a sofa, you're filming him or her, and that's the great intro and outro, a very simple film production. And then you, you make it available. So the sales, sales team don't need to pull in the resources all the time. Hmm. They can send, like have a library, it's like Lego. So you have a library of videos that are responding to all the normal questions that you get. Mm-hmm. But then you say, you say to the client, okay, so Nathan, I'm glad you asked about GDPR. Here's a 70 minute video about GDPR compliance. I'm sure it doesn't cover everything you need, but watch this first. And then we can have a meeting talking about the Delta, the Delta between your questions and our answers. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of the deal closing phase. Orientational are typically topics that are like megadeals was a bigger topic than ABM. Another typical orientational piece would be a way to infiltrate banks in Spain, for example, is actually to write about them. So you're writing an article saying, so these are the top 10 banks in Spain. And you mention a few sentences about the top decision makers that you want to meet. Hmm. Guess who will read that? Clever. So, so you, you actually, by writing about them, they will read it. And then you, boom, you end up on their radar. Hmm. So which types of companies should go mega deals? Like, what do I look like? You know, what, what is my typical makeup if I am going to go to start selling mega deals? Like, what yeah. should I, what do I look like internally? And how do I know whether I'm ready? Right, right. Good question. So we have three types of clients. So the first one is the most obvious one. So actually, some of the top 10 companies in the world are using us to put the systematic approach around Megadeal so they can scale it, so they can go away from the Rainmaker dependency, because even the biggest companies in the world have a handful of Rainmakers. Seriously, they would never write that in a, in a, in a report to the stock market, but they have a serious dependency on a few top Cristiano Ronaldos. Interesting. So we help them to put a systematic approach in place where they can, with a lower risk and a shorter time to market, get the scaling across their larger deals. So yeah, so we work with, with a few of those. The most the highest number of clients are found among scale-ups. So typically, either SaaS scale-ups is a big customer segment for us where they are like between 20 to a few hundred employees. And they have started to do some larger deals, but they have no idea how it happened even. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is not a criticism to them. It's just normal. They typically grew up by making a few smaller deals and then they went upstream. So SaaS companies that are selling into these enterprises, have, they want to start doing that or they have started, but they, they, they don't know how to go next to scale it further. And typically there's a high pressure from investors to continue to scale. So instead of trialing an error internally, they go, okay, let's take this best practice discipline, deploy it so we have a higher security around the scaling. The third target group, which is actually the one we aim for the most, but have the least of, is sustainability scale-ups. Now, 
they have an amazing fit. We have a few of those, but they have an amazing fit with the Megadis discipline because they're even selling into ecosystem, not e- not just to big companies. It's an e- normally an ecosystem of companies, so it's mm. really complex. There are fragments of lobbying in there. They typically have customer like the project funding in it, so it's 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 really uh, it's really complex. So it fits us perfectly. But the, actually, the commercial maturity of many sustainability companies is very low. So it's like, I don't know, maybe you're super technical. Even though I've been building tech companies my entire life, I'm not very technical. So if I need to recruit an IT security expert, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a 10 out of 10 point IT security expert and a 5 out of 10 point security expert. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the difference. So something we see in this in the sustainability scale-ups is that they are they're typically coming out of the tech domain, so they invented something around solar, wind, or storage, etc. And now all of a sudden they're going becoming commercial companies, and they're so immature that they don't even know what they don't know. Hmm. They haven't struggled long enough to know how hard it is. That it's equally hard to build a commercial machine as it is to create the technology. So they're still kind of like the IT industry was in the '90s, where it was very tech-centric. And a lot of companies failed. So you see actually a lot of sustainability companies failing. They can't get the commercial engine to work, even though they have an amazing technology. So in the sustainability domain, it's a lot of capital. A lot of companies wanted to, people wanted to invest in green companies. Sure. A lot of great tech innovation, but a very immature commercialization layer. So you talk about the, the risk factors there. What are some of the risk factors of selling mega deals? When doesn't it go right? What are some of the reasons for that? And what can companies do to mitigate it? Right. So so typically, well, one of the things we've touched upon, you don't have a synchronized messaging architecture in place. So some of the difficulties when doing mega deals is that you're all of a, all of a sudden not being able to get the decision makers in the room. Hmm. Uh, there are so many of them there, and you don't even know who's making what decision. So you need to engage a much bigger engine around the, the internal lobbying, hence ABM actually. So uh, account-based marketing and all the possible tools and methods around that um- umbrella are really great at driving consensus around the deal because you need to win, win a lot of votes. It's a bit like a political election. Sure. And Obama and those guys were really great at engaging media to help them win elections. Not good so much at running the country, but <laughs> good at winning elections. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So in a larger deal, you need to win votes. And that's something that is really hard for a small sales team. You can meet only a certain num- number of people. So some of them you will never get access to. Some of them you don't know who they are. And some of them are kind of medium important people you don't have time to meet. So you need to combine marketing and sales to win those larger deals. And, and then a big complexity is around the consensus machinery. I think there's an overbelief for people who haven't done larger deals. They think, yeah, if we just get the key decision maker in the room, it's fine. No, it's not. Hmm. It's, it's uh, very rare to have these very top-down decisions, especially in the democratic part of the world. As a top executive, you quickly get fired if you make decisions over the head of the people under you. Sure. And as you said, even in those larger organizations, it gets very political um it, oh, yeah. it gets it gets yeah. to a point where well who is actually responsible for making yeah, this yeah, decision yeah. in the yeah. in the first place do i even want to put my head on the chopping block mm. it's it's yeah. it's very political so then 
The question then leads to this whole idea that we've been having, the conversation that we've been having over the last few years around, are B2B decisions more emotional than they are logical and rational? Because everything that we've talked about so far is actually very rational and considered and, Mm -hmm. and left brain. There is an emotional component to making large deals that isn't really factored into a lot of the literature in mainstream. Yeah, I love that question. So what you often see, if you or no one else help the client to structure the categories and subcategories and what kind of capabilities to look at when buying a solution that solves their problem, what often happens is the people on the mid-level that were were driving the deal presented to the top management and top management can't see the forest for all the trees. Mm. And then they lean back and go for the safest brand. But uh, it's very difficult as a vendor to rely on being the safest brand. So unless you're the clear brand winner in your category, then you can gamble a bit. But if you're not, Mm. you benefit from helping the client to structure their whole decision by fleshing out the change drivers, the category choices, the subcategory choices with with all their definitions and pros and cons and examples. And and you, you help them to choose because... And this is interesting. I had a meeting with a management consultant from Deloitte the other day. He's helping executives make decisions. So he's helping them with the decision support material. And he was like, when he looked at our messaging architecture, he was like, yeah, this is how, this is how I'm instructed to structure the problems and the solutions to this management team. I was like, I know. He was like, but why is no one selling like this? I, I, I said, I know. <laughs> That's why we've constructed the messaging architecture as a way to match how big corporations are buying. But to your to your initial question, there is still a lot of larger companies that are unstructured enough so that when the decision is landing on the, the top management team level and you still have two vendors left in the race, if the problem and the categories and the subcategories are not structured enough, they typically fall back on the safest brand. Hmm. Because and it's it's kind of common sense. If you look at a if you look at a solution that has hundred thousand capabilities. The human brain can, based on science, handle between four and five dimensions. Hmm. So for four and five factors. So we, we, can, we can handle four and five or five factors and how they drive something else. So these are the four or five causes, how they collaborate to drive another an effect. But if you look at an ERP, for example, I mean, that has probably 100,000 dimensions. 100,000 things it covers or not covers. So when a top decision maker is sitting there with lack of time, looking at two different ERP vendors. They're like, yeah, I mean, they can't even overlook the consequence of the lack of certain functionalities, et cetera. cetera. Mm. So they go, which reference do they have that resembles us? Yeah. And which is the strongest brand? Brand Uh, is the shortcut. Yeah, that's the shortcut. So so I think you you need to build brand, but you also need to gamble less. You need to help the client to structure their decision process. And you need to spoon feed them with how to make the decision in a nuanced way. We, have, we don't have time enough to explain it, but the, the fundamental messaging part, which is a part of the whole messaging architecture, is that. It's kind of a reversed RFP process. So you're selling in the way the larger corporations are buying. It, it's kind of common sense. Once yeah. you really get it, you go, yeah, this is complete common sense. But it's still, like for most clients we work with, it's a bit of a, at least an, a big evolution. They go, well, oh, wow, this is a new way of selling. But then they go and they've done it for a while. Like, yeah, I mean, how could we do anything else before? It's crazy. 
Agency Dealmasters produce strategic B2B podcasts for agencies and brands so you can win new business and generate new leads. We've helped several businesses create shows to start new business conversations with their ideal target customers and generate new business revenue in the process. It worked so well for one client, they've completely stopped all other forms of marketing to focus 100% on podcasting as their main source of new business and lead generation. They've generated over a million pounds worth in new business revenue over the last 14 months. No other channel gives you unprecedented access to your ideal target buyers that includes ABM, email, and other direct approaches. To find out how a strategic B2B podcast could help your business, head over to agencydealmasters.com or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Okay, so I've got two more questions for you and then I want to get into our favorite questions that we ask one of our guests towards the end of the program. I've got a million more questions to ask, so we're going to have to get you back mm-hmm. on the show at some point because we're running out of time. Yeah, but, yeah, gladly. But as, as you look at the landscape for B2B marketing today, where do you see B2B marketing going over the next sort of five to 10 years? I mean, everything that we've talked about, programmatic, ABM, you know, you look at sort of sort of mega deals. There's so much complexity out there. I think a lot of decision makers yeah. in the boardroom don't even know what ABM is. There's no consensus. Around no, it. no, 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 no. Talk about Absolutely. what you see as the future of B2B marketing in the next sort of five to 10 years, let's say. Right. I could give you some uh, some projections. So the first one, right now, we recommend clients to spend at least 50% of their go-to-market budget on marketing if you're selling into enterprise or you're doing mega deals. And that number is typically very high for most companies, but the winners are already doing that. And my forecast is that already in five to 10 years, that number will be 70%. Hmm. So so you you actually benefit from having, and this is kind of a maybe a shock to some, it's not so easy to, well, some of the second tier salespeople you have, you can upgrade them to be mega dealers. But more, more than half of your sales force, you actually benefit from cutting them hmm. and moving that money into marketing because it's, it's more successful to take a smaller group of salespeople and give them massive air support. Hmm. That is a more successful formula uh, based on our research hmm. than growing and scaling a company with a bigger and bigger sales force. because. If, if you sit, I mean, uh, on a kind of the, off the record meeting with the sales exec and you go, so what's the performance like of your lowest 30, 40% of sales force? They go, oh, shit, Christopher. They go, it's, 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 not, it's not even describable. It's, it's, it's horrible. Uh, yeah. So you actually benefit from cutting those and moving that saving into marketing. So that's the first, uh, first it's already a fact, but it's definitely going to be even more like that even stronger in the coming few years uh, and that also has another consequence which is that marketing becomes more important so you'll see smarter cmos N- now in many b2b companies the cmo is playing a super low priority role they're, they're in, in terms of internal status they are here but if you if you apply the negative discipline the, the marketing team status is way higher and then going back to a few technology, I think I think you'll see uh, I think you'll see tools more developed according to logics. So since there's such a big difference between an SMB play and an enterprise and megadis play, I don't believe in taking a generic system 
trying to tweak it covering all of that because there there are two different sports like selling uh, doing a long long tail play and an enterprise play they're vastly different it's like football and basketball they're sure. not the same at all so so i think on the system side you'll see more things developed according to the sales logics so you you already see it you see companies that specialize around e-commerce that e-commerce sales logics you see companies like hubspot they're specialized around the transactional b2b sales logic sure and and you'll see the same happening in the enterprise and mega space what else I, I think this is probably known to everyone but video is an amazing carrier hence you have this blend of sound and video in in this one so video mm-hmm. is a format that you need to spend money on uh, there's an overspend on articles still mm-hmm. so you need to do video content and you need to do so when we talk about the messaging architecture we also help the client to translate that into 29 different videos so it's, a, it's like a lego system where you and the marketing and sales team can use the lego pieces in, in the right combinations and the right timing once they're developed i mean you start immediately with the first ones but, but you, once you have the library and then you go back and upgrade pieces of that lego library you go okay this video we know differently now, so we have to re-record it. So you're upgrading your video portfolio. And then, you I mean, you, you can still, you can transcribe. Now there are tools for that. You easily transcribe sure. a video into a text, and then you slightly mm-hmm. refine it, and it's good to go. So you, you, but, but you do video first, video first, not article first, video first. Mm. Yeah, and, and then you'll see, which the, the best companies are already doing, you'll see a much higher penetration of, marketing sitting with the deal teams discussing the deals with them not just sitting in another room doing campaigns it'll be more deal centric Hmm. yeah i mean we're playing around with a few things as well i mean one of our missions apart from helping clients to do larger deals in a more reliable way is to play around with any kind of new technology comes comes out we're playing around with an avatar right now Hmm. you'll see some some of that soon on on our linkedin it's exciting we're playing around with TikTok. TikTok is growing at a tremendous speed. I think it'll be, it's already important, but it'll be super important very, very fast. So we're playing around with that and how that fits into an enterprise and mega deals play. Really fascinating. I could speak to you about this all day. And as you said, we're going to have to sort of get you back on the show because we haven't finished the questions. I can't let you go without asking a few of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. So let's jump into that segment of the show right now. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah, so I started my first company when I was 10. But uh, the first time I failed the company was when I was uh, about 25. By the way, what, what was the company at 10 years old? That's, that's fascinating. You can't just <laughs> gloss over that. <laughs> you started a company at 10. Yeah, but it was, it was very simple. So uh, I was with my father at the wholesaler. He had some kind of access to that for whatever reason. And I noticed that the, the candy was like a tenth of the price compared to a retail store and these huge boxes of candy. So I asked my dad, can I, can I get my monthly allowance for a few months forward and buy candy for it? And he was like, no, that's not a good idea. He thought I would eat it. <laughs> and I was like, no. And, and we lived uh, in a city with about well, 70,000 inhabitants and mm. an amazing archipelago. So, but a small enough city. So the archipelago was not full of restaurants. So... Out in the archipelago, it was lots of boats, lots of families, but no supply. 
Mm. So I, I, I that, that first business was, I mean, just for fun. I was selling candy from our boat Smart. in the archipelago because there was no supply. And my friends called me, uh, what's the uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, like this kind of greedy. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, you're this greedy, greedy friend. I'm like, you capitalist have, yeah, entrepreneur. Capitalist. I'm, I'm like, you, right. you don't have to buy the candy. And they were like, yeah, but no one else sells it. I'm like, yep, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Cornered the market. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible, terrible. <laughs> we have to get the antitrust guys in to, to, break, to break you down. Really fascinating. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? So I, I do go to the gym four or five times a week, actually. Uh, wow. I started to do that one year ago. I was triggered by COVID. I became more and more unfit. I was like, this is not okay. I used to play semi-professional football when I, when I was younger. So I was like, you know, I used to have the eight pack. And I was like, I don't have any pack anymore. I look horrible. <laughs> So I then decided, no, I, I need to go into more healthy lifestyle. So, so I do that. I do some cross-country skiing. Uh, I'm actually using a coach on that. He's really, really sharp. And so he's coaching me on the angles and all that. And I do some downhill skiing, but mainly cross-country skiing and, and really? gym, actually. So I did play a lot of football and tennis and stuff before, but that's too connected to injuries. So I, I shy away from those. Sure. Too much impact. Yeah, exactly. Aside from mega deals, what other books do you read? Personal, professional development. What books have been instrumental over the years? Yeah, so Crossing the Chasm uh, by Jeffrey Moore and Michael Eckert and those guys is something. If you haven't read it, you completely mm. need to read it. It's an amazing strategy strategy book. We're good friends with Michael Eckert. He's he and his team has done all the all the cases in that book. Wow, uh, he's an amazing guy. He's actually on two our to our own podcasts. Uh, you should listen to those two episodes if you like Mark Organ, Michael Eckert. Is actually those two are the smartest people we have on that show. The Michael Organ podcast, both of them. I mean, I listened to one of them last week. Yeah. Absolutely mind blowing, brilliant. Yeah. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the description. Yeah, yeah. So, so crossing the chasm would be my strong recommendation. Brilliant. Last couple of questions. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career? selling mega deals well uh, this is completely self-serving but i would totally uh, read a mega deals book uh, that is available on amazon and all sorts of places i would follow our mega deals podcast mm. uh, we have lots of webinars uh, it is actually if i would have known what i know today when i was 25 i mean man <laughs> mm. yeah so that's actually my final question actually what do you know about selling mega deals today that you wish you knew at 25 years old? What do you know now? The complexity of the internal politics in a large company mm. uh, and how to manage that. Great place to end. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Nathan. We have been speaking with Christopher Engman. He is currently the author of Mega Deals and the co-founder and managing partner of the Mega Deals Advisory. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 134 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, B2B, ABM, advertising. Go down the list. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do our show every week without our very own talented deal masters. Tyler Bello is our junior editor. 
Christoph Blaschek is our editor, booker slash project manager. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Thomas, really fascinating conversation there with Christopher Engman. He talks a lot about the difficulty of, of doing deals, the complexity of doing deals in large organizations with multiple stakeholders when the buying structures are so uh, complex and dynamic, um, cross-functional teams all around the world. It's so difficult to get all decision makers in the room at the same time. He stressed a lot about the importance of organizational politics and really understanding that context in order to be able to execute effective ABM and ABA campaigns. What did you take away from the discussion with Chris? Thanks, Nathan. And I totally agree. It was really interesting to hear also because no matter whether you, you know Christoph Engman or not, uh, I know, knew about him before, he's really one of the, one of the pioneers within ABM uh, and, and uh, campus advertising and IP targeting and, and such. So I think that my main take out was actually the development from a technical approach to really focus on the complexity in organizations and understanding the necessity and the, the dimensions of what you communicate when and how, how to be much more involved in this deal closing messaging. And I think that in the end, when, when working with, with ABM and in our case, uh, more account based advertising, uh, the more upper funnel, uh, part of, of the, of the communication, then it's really much about understanding how we can assist uh, our partner agencies or, or the clients, the brands, in, in getting the right message out to the right audience, to the right people uh, at the accounts in the other end. And it's very much about not only just we want to reach these companies and, and those are in target and, and, and how to do that, but very much also about having an understanding about, okay, what to be said, when to, to evolve, when to change the communication, if some account, some company should be moved to another phase, uh, to phase two, phase three, et cetera. What kind of content is, is available for that? And I would say that the, uh, the pitfall is sometimes if there isn't a common understanding about also the, the possibilities in the execution. And then, and then also from the, the operational teams at our end, really having, having an understanding about why this differentiated communication has been produced and made. Uh, what's the purpose of that? So if we skip that, those phases too fast and, and just say, well, it's just fucking play. This is the communication. These are the accounts. Let's roll and, and, mm. and, and execute. Then uh, we don't get these details that Christopher focused so much on, uh, building, really orchestrating the communication. Sure. Uh, and also he, he also uh, mentioned that it was really about taking the communication uh, to another level and, and by creating a common language between sales and marketing. Right. Because they really need to be aware. It's the salespeople who's really on top of the product and what is being sold, and, and marketing needs to com- communicate that. And if they are not on the same page, it, it, it is a problem. Sure. And, and, and it won't get easier, as for example, as us as account inside being at the other end and need to catch that, or that, that communication and then deliver on that mm. and, and execute it in the market. It's really about having this overall 360 understanding about why and how. And the bigger the deal, the more important. 